Father God, tonight as we um, continue into uh, this teaching series of looking at you being with us, and uh, as we've looked at Scripture, and from Genesis forward, uh, finding this uh, a story that maybe we didn't think was true or we weren't taught, uh, but, but it's incredibly clear as we read it, of human history being one of people running away from you or the things of you to try to do it ourselves and you chasing after us. And so, Father, as we uh, continue into this week, God, I pray that we would find uh, you being here with us, that you showing up, you living with us, you residing among us, uh, that, that that would remind us once again uh, that, uh, that you're not waiting to punish us, you're not... Um, someone who is uh, up high looking at us down low, marking off everything we've ever done wrong, uh, but that it's a constant pursuit for us to love you back and for us to realize how much you love us. And so, Lord, I pray as we dive into the Word today that we would be able to see that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I, I, weirdly so, this is, uh, it's been a, a really fun for me. I've, I've been able to nerd out a little bit studying for this series and looking at the first week uh, in this series, we were calling Dwell, God with us, and what it means in the story of Scripture, uh, and, and really the Scripture's story of history, of being one long uh, kind of uh, uh, love scene of God chasing his people down and waiting for them to see who he is and how he loves us. And so we looked at the Garden of Eden, that's the first thing that we see. God creates it, plants his people in it blesses it, uh, uh, creates it to be the perfect place for people to flourish and to enjoy and uh, bringing functionality and purpose into a place where there wasn't. And so as we looked at that, we saw that's what we were created for. And just like Adam and Eve, we do the same thing where it's like, that's really nice, but I'm, I'm curious what's over here and I want to check out what's over there. And in a sense, we find the exit door out of what God's plan for us is and we run into uh, all these different areas that aren't him. And so as humanity leaves this place where God comes to dwell with his people, what we see next, or what we uh, talked about last week, was uh, God on Mount Sinai after he's taken the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And if you don't know the movie, uh, or you don't know the story, go watch the movie Prince of Egypt cartoon, super great. But at least it gives you a snapshot. So brings them out of slavery, and God is on Mount Sinai, and he's giving the Ten Commandments. And one of the things he instructs is, hey, my people who have been in slavery for, for four centuries, I want you to know that there's a place where I'm going to come be with you that you're never going to have to question, guess, or wonder where I'm at. So he instructs them to build this tabernacle or a, a tent, a, a mobile temple that would travel with them as they go and uh, would move with them as they go with it. And there's all these pieces of furniture that were uh, descriptive and that were helpful. And so as he pieces this whole thing together, he says, this is how you're going to know I'm with you. And he talks about this pillar of cloud that would fall on the tabernacle. And that's how you would know that he's there. And at night there would be fire in that cloud, which is crazy. And he says, if you, when you worship in this place, and when you see this, and when you come and are, uh, walk through it, remember that I'm with you. And so tonight we want to continue into that, but it's not a garden, and it's not a tent or a building, it's something wildly different. I want to start uh, with, by mentioning this. I don't know if you've ever been in a spot where someone's been hurting and you can't be there with them. I think that's probably been one of the saddest things of the last 10 months is people in hospitals by themselves without someone being able to be with them. 
Uh, in January of last year, almost a year ago, the talks and all this stuff of COVID had started bubbling up, and um, uh, shortly after, I think it was maybe the second or third week of January, um, got a call from my family that my dad was in the hospital, uh, and, and he's got some respiratory issues, and they had no idea what was going on. And because COVID was looming and nobody knew, they had shut it off and nobody could go up and be with him. And so uh, testing was a lot longer and all these things took a long time. And I remember being three hours away, my family's all in Springfield, and thinking the only thing I want to do is just go be with him, just go sit with my dad in the hospital room. I'm not a doctor. I can't do anything to help. But I just wanted to be there and not being able to be there really, really messed with me. Uh, and then over Thanksgiving, we were down in Springfield, and the morning of Thanksgiving, we were getting ready to do all of our normal stuff, and we got a call that uh, Ray's mom had gone into the hospital that morning, and nobody could go up and visit her. And we couldn't be with family, and we couldn't be there uh, to be present. And I say all that to say this, is when people we love are suffering and struggling, we're intuitively given to want to be with them. When people are hurting, there's something in us that just wants to be present. There's something inside of us that wants to be close, that wants to be near. Now, that being said, I'm also, uh, crisis and those kind of things actually paralyze me, and I tend to not move because I don't know what to do. So, just so you know that, if someone gets hurt, I'm, my tendency is not to run and help. It's kind of like stand here and stare like this, because uh, I don't really know what to do. Uh, but there is that piece of, they're hurting, I can't be with them, and then there's a disconnect. And I would say this, and we read this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God creates man, and he looks at man, and he says, I'm gonna, we're going to create man in the image of God. In the image of God, we're going to create them. Male and female, they were created and we get this sense that humanity and there's deeply parts of who we are that are tied into the image of who God is and I would say this the same thing that is inside of us that that yearns and longs to want to be with people that are hurting when we can't comes from the creator we were made in the image of who longs and hurts that he can't be necessarily directly with the people who are hurting The Bible is, among other things, an account of God's encounters in history to be with his people. It's not all, if you grew up in in some kinds of churches or you you heard other things, it kind of is that doom and gloom, uh, hellfire and brimstone, you're never good enough, God's angry, all those kind of things. Or you grew up in a church that maybe is a little too fluffy, rainbows and unicorns, right? That everything's fine, it's good, like he just wants to hug you, all those kind of things. There's a seriousness to God, and we lose that, but he's neither nor, or maybe he's just both and. That there is this longing, deep sense of God to want to be with him, but there's a serious repercussion to when we're not. And we sense that in our everyday lives and our everyday decisions. Here's my point, is throughout scripture and its telling of human history, here's what we find is when people are prone to wander from God, and we are, is God longs to chase after so he can be with us and we can be with him. In Genesis chapter 3, shortly after we find God's intended intentional purpose and presence in his creation, the first humans like us lose everything and they're looking for something other than God to fulfill them. And after that garden scene, it's a story of God's continually showing up simply just to be with his people. And after a while, they go to the tabernacle, and they're in this tent, and God is there. And they say, no, 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 we're just going to use this tent as kind of like a good luck charm trinket so we can win battles. And God 
doesn't play that game, and they lose those battles. And then they want to build this big, big, beautiful temple, and so they build the temple, and people start enjoying the temple more than they appreciate the one who resides in it. And over and over you see this circulating. God is uh, the one who is over his people, but they cry out, all these other nations have kings, we want one just like them. And God says, I promise you, you don't want someone else running who you are. I'm the best. And they say, no, 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 we want somebody else. So he lets them have somebody else. I don't know what to do with that. And they choose somebody who, in my mind, looks like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, at least the way Scripture unfolds it. Tall, dark, handsome. But he's arrogant. He's got no self-confidence. Not the rock, I've never met him, but Saul, the king. And he messes everything up simply because, simply because, he's not worthy of carrying that mantle. And we find throughout Scripture all these kings. Uh, David comes in later, and David's a great dude, but isn't worthy to carry that kind of mantle. And when we first meet him, he's someone who's deeply in love with God, who prays to God often, whose heart is uh, after God, who we read that, but then he gets power, and then he gets money, and then he doesn't have to be out on the battlefield anymore, and what happens to him is what happens to us, is the further we get away from God and being on the front lines of doing what he wants us to do, we find our lives distancing, and then the ramifications and percussions that come from that. And Isaiah, in the time of these prophets that pop up, about 600 years before Jesus comes, uh, Isaiah picks up in a place where God's people have been incredibly disobedient, incredibly rebellious, while still remaining casually religious. Also known as not much different than the world we live in. We like the things of God, we just don't want to do what he actually says. We like to enjoy the topics. We, we want blessing. We want favor. We want abundance. But we don't want obedience. We don't want to have to do things that we don't want to do. And he keeps telling them, listen, the further you run away from me, the further you run into trouble. So if you keep running, you're going to find out what that feels like. And we can read it in one way where God just punishes and he smites and he brings down. All he just says is you're going to run so far. The hard part is I may just let go. And so you can see what happens when you run that far. In Isaiah chapter 10, God informs. Now imagine this, right? Isaiah is, is kind of a preacher-y type person in his time. And he goes and he's got this message that he's giving to Israel. And it's not the best message. It's not where he pops up and he's got all kinds of stage props and lighting and smoke machines. And, and everyone's just in love with the teaching. He shows up and says, you guys are kind of garbage followers of Jesus. You're not doing very well. In fact, God's going to come allow the people outside to take you. In fact, in chapter 10, he says there's going to be an outside force. In this case, it's the Assyrians. And they will destroy your land and they'll take away your way of living. You're going to be scattered and that's going to be it. That's not the hope-filled sermon people show up for. Right? I'm looking for God, I'm pursuing God, I'm trying to find God, and you're going to take everything away and some other country is going to come in and swipe, uh, wipe us out and, and take us everywhere. And God says this, he says, I'm causing this to happen because you become too comfortable living with idols, with sin, and thinking that, sorry, you've been so wrapped up in your sin and your idols and this kind of thinking, and that needs to be destroyed. And here's what we find here. 
is he uses this image of trees, which is super interesting. And he gives this image of a forest and all these tall trees that are up. And uh, if you've ever been in a forest with big trees, it's, I lived in Boulder, Colorado for a couple years. And when you're in giant mountains with giant trees, it's just a cool place. You feel very small. And he uses these trees to say, hey, listen, you guys are kind of like this forest. It's tall. And with that comes there's some arrogance that's involved. You, you puff yourself up. You think you're mighty. You think you're powerful. You think all these things. And he says that forest is going to give wipe to stumps. The trees are going to fall. It's all going to bow down. There's nothing that's going to be left. And he uses that image of arrogant pride. And he reminds them, I'm going to chop that down because that's not the way of what it means to be my people. And we do the same thing. We say, God, we want you to come save us, redeem us, restore us. And maybe we do. But sometimes what we really want is for God to come and put our life in a spot where we can be exalted and where we can have abundance that makes us superior. What we really mean is I want you to save me out of this paycheck and I want you to redeem me into this one. I want you to save me out of this family and I want you to restore me into this one. I want you to get out of all of this and put me into all that. What we don't want is him to show up. What we want is kind of like Santa Claus. We want the good stuff to show up. We want the, the presents. We want the prayers that we've been asking for. And we say we want God to make all things new. But then a lot of times we kick and scream when he begins removing what's old. God, we want this new thing. We're looking for what you've got next. And God says, great, well, let's cut down the forest and start over. It's like, I didn't want to start over. I thought we could just find a clearing and build my mansion and we'd be good. He says, no, it's all got to be cut down. And not all of us like to be cut down. If 2020 has helped me realize some things, it's that there's been some stuff that's been cut down that I didn't want cut down. There were things removed that I didn't want removed. There was certain seasons and ways that life worked that I didn't want taken away. And here's one of the things we learn in what Isaiah, what Isaiah teaches and what happens in Christ is we can't mistake the transition for the destination. This may be what it's like now, but that's not how it's going to end. He says, listen, uh, these trees are going to get cut and that's going to be it. And you're looking around saying, well, this used to be a beautiful forest. And thanks God, now it's nothing. And some of you have done that with your marriage, you've done it with your families, you've done it with jobs, money, all kinds of things where you've said, really God, this is what it is. This is what it means. We're just going to cut it all off and, and we're left with nothing. Uh, the seasons of things being taken away is necessary so we can give our full attention and anticipation when He shows up. We can't make the mistake of assuming God can hand us the next chapter of our calling without removing things, refining things, and renewing things in our soul. Now, we have this innate sense that we're just ready. And God reminds us over and over in Scripture, you're not ready. You may not be ready. There is a season. There are blessings. There is new calling. There is new chapters. There are next things coming, but until your soul's ready for it, you may not see those things until they come, because guess which one God cares about more? It's your soul. So once maturity stirs up there, then you'll be ready for what follows. Maybe we can make some kind of summary from the Old Testament like this, is that God's ready, but you aren't. 
but he's making you ready. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10, he says, I've refined you. But not as silver's refined, rather I've refined you in the furnace, not of literal fire, because that doesn't work well to try to prolong humanity. I didn't refine you like that, instead I'm refining you through suffering. There's something about struggle. If you were to look at human history through the lens of innovation and discovery and all these things, it usually comes out of struggle. We didn't have this and we had nothing, so we had to figure it out. And Isaiah's speaking, or God rather speaking to his people, reminding them there's a refining that's happening. There's something that's a, a, a refining process gets out all the impurities. It gets the bubbles out, the air bubbles that make it weak so that it's solid and it's firm. And some of us this year have noticed a little bit of what God may be doing in the middle of a struggle of refining. And so we're left with this image in Isaiah at least of what was once this beautiful, mighty forest that's been laid to waste to dead stumps. And for so many of us, we have areas of our lives that look like that and that's happened to us of things that have been taken away. So we assume it's punishment. But in parenting, not that I'm great at it, but this is at least what I've been told, punishment should never just be a show of anger or wrongdoing. Uh, punishment isn't simply just to point out faults. Instead, it's a correction. It's a time of course correcting, of preparing, of maturing, so that it doesn't happen again. Uh, punishment, in a real sense, isn't just, at least in a, maybe a biblical one, or discipline, maybe a better term for it, isn't just so that you know that the other person's angry. It's so that you stop doing it because there's something better for you if you were to do it a different way. So in it's in this hopeless scene of looking like there's nothing left that hope breaks through. In this field where you look out and all it is is all these stumps where you can tell, right? It's the pictures they scared us about when we were little of the rainforest being cut down of. If all this is gone, there's nothing left to grow. It would take decades for anything to happen here. And I love as we turn the page from Isaiah 10 to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, he says this, But out of this stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. What looks like it's dead and hopeless, what looks like it can't be used anymore, what looks like it's thrown out, guess what? It's got purpose, and it's got use to it. Out of a dead, cut down, destroyed, hopeless remnant of what used to be, new life springs up out of this line of David. Why? Because way, 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 way back when, Jesus found this guy named Abram, and he told him, hey, if you look up at the stars, right? We're talking someone's in their 70s with a wife that's not much younger. If you look up at the stars and you see all these, that's how numerous your descendants are going to be, which is a weird thing to tell an old couple that's never been able to have kids. And God provides in their 90s. Don't think about it too long. It gets weird. In their 90s, they have a son, which doesn't look like a starry night. And he says, through your kids, there's going to be a great multitude, and these will be my people, and, these, uh, and, and, and I will be your God, and you will be uh, my people. And so uh, this is the scene we've got. And now you look at that starry multitude, and it looks like a bunch of stumps laid waste where there's nothing. But he says, God's not finished yet. 
The question I've wondered more this year is how is God still keeping his promise and his persistence? After you follow not the story of what God does, the story of what people do, you wonder how in the world did God stay so persistent? I think I would have given up. Uh, these humans he created to be his image bearers on this created earth keep pushing him away and trying to do everything on our own, don't we? And he keeps showing up and he keeps pursuing us. And sure, he promises to be their God and he will be their people, but come on. How patient do you have to be to deal with people like you and me who are just perpetually trying to be God rather than trying to just be with him? Matthew chapter 1 which I'm guessing is not a chapter of the Bible that all of us love. Because it's a weird list of names that we can't pronounce. And if one, right, of the entire story of Scripture, I think there's 28 chapters in the book of Matthew, why did we spend so much time on a list of names that we don't know much about any of them? It's because it's a historical record of God not giving up even when His people did. In this list are sinners, liars, prideful men, some of them evil men. And it's a record that God didn't give up on. It's a record that shows us that God didn't give up on us even when we gave up on Him. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, and I'm going to fly through it and switch some of the words, which you're not supposed to do with the Bible, but give me some grace. It says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. If you don't remember that story, go look it up. It's a questionable one at best. Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam then had Abijah, and then he had a son named Asa, and then he had a son named Jehoshaphat, and then had a son named Jehoram, and then a son Uzziah. And then he had a son named Jotham, and then that son had one named Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. And then there was Manasseh, who had a kid named Amon, and then had Josiah, and then had Jeconiah, and then Jeconiah had another Jeconiah, and then there was Zerubbabel. And then Zerubbabel had more kids, and then there was Abahud, and then we had Eli, uh, Eliakim, and then we had Azor, and Zadok, and Akim, and Elihud, and Eleazar, and Methan, uh, and then Jacob. And verse 16 is where it gets pretty fun. Because in verse 16 he says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Here's what I want you to see in that. You can go study all the lives of those people. There's some of those names we know absolutely nothing about other than that they were the son of so-and-so or the father of somebody else. Some of those we know their stories, and if you read it, you wonder how they made it on the list. How did God still hold on to that one? These names matter and they're worth reading out loud because in that list of names are people who have hurt people worse than you have. In that list of names are people whose anger did more destruction than what yours ever has. Who've messed up their marriages and their parenting worse than you ever did. Who were worse to their parents than what some of us have been. In that list are people who worshipped idols and left God and ran further than what you ever did. In that list, there are people who gave up on God more deeply than what you ever have. And they're still used by God to bring hope and joy and peace and love to a world that needs it most. 
And then in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, I don't have a good Charlie Brown voice, but you'll notice it when you hear it. Luke's writing, and he's been uh, uh, interviewing people and questioning them and trying to get this real story of what was going on with this guy named Jesus. And so he goes down and, in an investigative reporting kind of way, is asking all these questions and drumming up all these stories and trying to really figure out who Jesus was. He's not Jewish. He didn't grow up with these stories. He's just simply showing up trying to figure out what's going on. And along the way, we find that he falls in love with Jesus the more he hears about him and becomes a disciple and helps in this church planting effort to spread the gospel around the world. But in chapter 2, when he's writing, he writes this. He says, at this time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire, which was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register in the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, which we just read the list in case you got questions, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea because that was David's hometown. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Some of this may seem like we don't know why it matters because there was actual kings and emperors. There was actual things going on. There was actual uh, hardship taking place. There was a census going on so that uh, the emperor would just know who everybody was and where they were going. And because of something that was going on with an evil empire, God started working in something. And in here, what we find is there's this a poor couple from a little town that have very little to their name uh, that have to travel to this town that they don't belong to. But what's more interesting that he even throws the name Nazareth in there is that the Hebrew word for Nazareth means a shoot or a stump that's out of a literal town, which is crazy. That this stump that looks like it's dead and laid bare, that new life is going to pop up and hope is going to come and the Spirit of God is going to be with that person. In verse 5 it says, He took with him Mary whom, to whom he was engaged and was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for a baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Most scholars agree that in the fields outside of Bethlehem, those particular shepherds, particularly in uh, certain fields right outside of Bethlehem, is where they would have raised up the sheep used for temple sacrifices. And we talked about a lot of the temple stuff last week. So particularly in Bethlehem, those shepherds would have been the ones that would have uh, known and looked for who was going to be the perfect spotless uh, lamb. And Go back and read Leviticus if you're confused on that. Who was going to be the one that was going to be going to the temple to be uh, given as a sacrifice? Here's what's crazy. When that lamb was found to be spotless and without blemish, it was chosen to be sacrificed to atone for God's people. And when the lamb was born, and they found it to have no scars, no blemishes, no uh, coloring on its wool, they would wrap it in clothes so it would stay calm and not hurt it or scratch it or mark itself while thrashing around. And they would place it in a manger to stay calm and separated for temple use. So we may miss it because that's 2,000 years ago and it's not our neighborhood, but don't miss this. It's as if the Messiah being born to poor parents in a borrowed barn wasn't enough, the people God invites to the delivery room are some of the lowest people in culture. 
But they knew who they were looking for because pride didn't get a hold of them. They didn't puff themselves up bigger than they thought they should be. In chapter 2, verse 8 of Luke, it says, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. He said, I bring you good news that will be for uh, great joy for all the people. Mind you, since about 400 years before this, God's not spoke. The heavens haven't opened up. There's not been a word spoken to be helpful or a reminder or a guide. It's just wait. And how much of us love that? Praying for God to move, praying for God to show up, praying for God to heal, praying for God to restore. And you hear nothing. Silence. But to these shepherds who weren't even allowed in town, God shows up to them where they are. And he says, don't be afraid, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah of the Lord has been born to you in Bethlehem, the city of David. You will recognize him by this sign. He says, you will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. My guess is this, is if the angel would have said that to anyone else, they wouldn't have understood it. But because he went to people who were listening, and he went to people whose pride hadn't gotten in the way, and their assumptions of what life should be like, and their uh, uh, accolades and the things that they wanted for themselves, they weren't too wealthy to have to deal with life without God. They depended on him. They needed him. They knew what it was like to not be involved or included it may have missed everyone else because sometimes we can get so busy with life that we stop paying attention to God. But for people that have nothing else but to lean on God, He shows up because He knows they're listening. And He uses images that they would have known and He speaks to them in ways they would have heard. Uh, they were beneath their social preferences, but the shepherds knew who they were looking for. Because in verse 13 it says, Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, an army of heaven, Praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. And when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's go in the city that they don't want us in. Let's run to the village. Let's go check it out. Let's see this thing that has happened which the Lord's told us about. The rest of us, my assumption is, the angels go back into heaven and we're wondering if we just had like weird milk for lunch that day. Brush it off. I don't know. Do you want to drive all the way? I don't know. It's getting late. The kids should be down for bed. I don't know. I think we should just stay. He goes to people that are looking. He goes to people that are waiting. People that don't have anything to distract them so that when God shows up, they're ready. It says they hurried to the village, and they found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby laying in a manger. And after seeing him, I love this verse, after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherds were astonished. People they wouldn't let shop in their grocery stores are now the first messengers of the good news. They get to go out. In verse 19, Mary wasn't ready to be done with the diapers. She wasn't ready for this kid to be able to talk and get himself food. 
It says Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and thought about them often. Because God's up to something and he's doing something and we need to be paying attention and we need to store that stuff in because there's going to be hard times coming. Mary's in the crowd when they crucify her son. She's going to need to remember. She's going to be there when multiple times they try to stone, kill, and throw him off cliffs and she needs to remember that God's up to something. Shepherds went back to their flocks glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, and it was just as the angel had told them. One of my favorite things about the story of the shepherds is they don't get elevated to a new level of society. They don't get promoted to a new job. They don't get a bigger paycheck, and they don't win a brand new car to the publisher's clearinghouse. They go back to work, and they're rough jobs where nobody cares, and nobody listens, and they're by themselves. But this time, they've got a story that was great joy for all the people. And they go back praising God. And I think for a lot of us, when we come to be with Jesus and we remember Christmas, God coming to be with us, we don't always leave with great joy. We don't always go back to our normal lives praising him. We can get so caught up in the progress and elevation and promotion of our own lives that we miss what God is doing altogether. And with the whirlwind of events in 2020, It's disrupted so many of us from what we were trying to do and where we were trying to go. And I wonder if somewhere in the unfolding of this year, God wasn't working so subtly low that many of us just missed him. Eugene Peterson, when he retells John chapter 1 in kind of a really weird, different way to tell the Christmas story, he says it this way, he was in the world. And the world was there through him, meaning none of us or this happens if God doesn't make it happen. And yet the people of the world didn't even notice him. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. Uh, But whoever did want him, who believed he was who he claimed to be and would do what he said he would do, he, uh, he made them be their true selves, their child of God's selves. These are God begotten. Not blood begotten or flesh begotten. And I love in verse 14 where he says, the word became flesh and blood and it moved into the neighborhood. It's when God decides he's not going to camp out in heaven and just wait, he's going to show up and be and do. Carl Jung, who's a philosopher from a long time ago, says this, modern men often don't see God because they don't look low enough. Because we want elevation, our eyes are up. We want promotion, our eyes are up. We want bigger, better, our eyes are up. And you'll miss the manger with an infant in it if you're looking up. Because you've got to get down on a knee. And you have to worship. And you have to be willing to pay attention. For many of us, this is our problem. We miss the God of the universe is doing because he enters the world in areas that we've deemed are below us. It's not about the financial disparity of Jesus' earthly family or even himself. It's about the humble confidence of God dwelling in the least likely places and moving our lives to find him where he is. Many of us are just waiting for God to catch up with us rather than us moving our lives to make sure that we're caught up with him. Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was gunned down while serving communion during the San Salvador Civil War, Incredible person in church history, unbelievable story, but he writes this poem the last Christmas he was on earth. He called it The God We Hardly Knew. It wasn't in English, so it doesn't rhyme anymore. 
But it reads this way. It says, No one can celebrate a genuine Christmas without being truly poor. The self-sufficient, the proud, and those who, because they have everything, look down on others. Those who have no need of even God, for them there will be no Christmas. Only the poor, only the hungry, only those who need someone to come on their behalf will have that someone. That someone is God. It's Emmanuel, God with us. Without poverty of spirit, there can be no abundance of God. And so this year, for us, with the uh, so much bigness of Christmas removed out of our normal, not too many big parties, big gatherings, big budgets, or big debt and big layaway, and that's okay. The birth of Jesus causes us to kneel down before an infant to quiet down and to calm down. And for a moment to stop asking God to keep up with you, stop what you're doing, stop what you're worrying about, stop with what you're anxious over, stop what you're fearful of and angry about, stop what you're mourning the loss of. And rather than asking God to keep up with you, at Christmas time, like the shepherds, would you slow down, look down, bow down, and worship the Messiah? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, he goes back and he says this, the people walking in darkness, and he gives his Christmas story, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. In verse 6 he says, for unto us a child is born, and a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with the justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah also mentions God's not done. He's not finished. This isn't over. He's not laid waste to it. He dwelled with us in the garden, but then we made it inaccessible. And then he dwells with us in the tabernacle and the temple, but because of us, it was leveled. But then he dwelled with us in a manger. Now, 2020 has been a magnifier. Here's what I mean. Uh, every issue, every discussion, every decision, no matter how small, has exploded into something huge. Most of it because we can't turn off the TV or social media. But not only that, also every fear, every anxiety, every insufficiency, every discontentment, no matter how small it started, can easily blow up into something huge. And if Christmas is good at anything, it's causing us to minimize everything we think to be a big deal, to get on a knee and worship something so small, so insignificant by the world's standards. Newborn baby out in the middle of a borrowed barn, sleeping in a hay trough. It makes the bigness quiet down. Uh, I remember when all of our boys were born, and we had financial problems, and we had worries, and we had, I don't know, things in our house that were breaking, because something was always breaking, probably a car that was halfway running. And I remember holding Jonathan, because he was our first, and I remember not remembering any of that. And I wasn't really a big baby person before that. I was a big baby. I just wasn't a big baby person. 
And I never got it. I, don't, I never really held a baby, all that stuff. But I remember holding Jonathan. I had this. It was, all, it was different. And then Lucas came, and it was different. And then Matthew, and then Samuel. And then uh, starting to watch people celebrate the births of their babies and getting so excited. But when you're holding a baby, I'm a loud person. I can't be me when I'm holding a baby. Ray says I scare them. You have to quiet down and you have to, nobody cares about your politics when you're holding a baby. Nobody cares about all the things we make so big when you're holding a baby. All the other stuff fades away. And I love the simplicity of God showing up in a way where we couldn't wonder and start fighting from the get-go whether he was or was not who he said he was going to be. It was the people that were looking low enough that found him. We celebrate God leaving the bigness of the throne of heaven to dwell with us in a small manger. And for many of us, maybe you need to leave the bigness of your disappointment and the bigness of your loneliness and the bigness of your anxiety and stress and worry and maybe even the bigness of your self-doubt over yourself and your hopelessness. Maybe you're striving for greatness and leave all of that so you don't miss him. What I hope for us this year is that we don't get caught up in making everything else so big while minimizing truth that in Christ, God comes to be with us. Because if you do, you'll miss the humble, gentle entry of God into the human story. You may miss His life and voice as your wonderful counselor, as your mighty God, as your everlasting Father, and as our Prince of Peace. So my invitation for us this Christmas is to stop making all this other stuff so big so we can worship the bigness of something so small that impacted the rest of human history forever in Christ. Would you stand? Lord Jesus, we are grateful. Uh, Father, we... um, As we pray and think about you, think about Christmas, think about this whole story, not the holiday, not the shopping, not all the food that needs to be made, not the people uh, that we have to pretend like we're good enough, not the ones that we're going to have to pretend like everything's fine when it's not, not a Christmas where we need to uh, uh, tease people or joke with people uh, just so they don't ask us real serious questions because things aren't going well. God, I pray this year that we would be able to enter Christmas maybe in a more true way of the first one. Nothing pretending to be anything that it's not. Not having to worry about whether the decorations are good enough or the presents are good enough. If the shepherds teach us anything, it's okay to show up open-handed to worship Jesus. As long as we worship. So Father, this year, as we go into a probably more simplified year, uh, one that probably didn't have as much money or stress behind it, God, would you move out of us? Lord, we, we need to have a Prince of Peace. Father, I pray that we would be reminded that you've already sent one. It's ours to accept him and put him as king on the throne of our life. With all the uncertainty and things we don't know, you've already given us a wonderful counselor. So if we don't know what to do or where to go or we're struggling with direction, it's not because you haven't already sent one. 
Maybe it's just because we haven't put him on the throne of our lives to reign and rule who we are and what we do. God, for those of us who are looking, I pray that we would be able to see that we have an almighty Father. We have a mighty God. So Father, this year, would you remind us again that you've already come to dwell with us. And in fact, through those of us who claim you as the Lord over our life, who believe in our hearts that you are who you say you are, and we can say with our mouths because we're fully confident that you've done what you said you would do, God, I pray that we would be reminded that we actually are this newly inhabited form of who you are on earth, that your spirit is in us, it moves with us, it walks with us, that you're here. And if we can go back long enough into our spiritual story to remember when you weren't, God, I pray that we would find that it's enough just to be able to worship in your presence, just to be able to know who you are and whose we are in your presence. So Father, we worship you because you're worthy of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.